Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Miss the show? No worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. The autism community speaking out against the defense being used in the Young Street murder trial saying it will bring undeserved scorn to a community already misunderstood. Boeing's a go to fly in the U.S. Canada says no go. Why? And the collateral damage of COVID-19. Things like opiate deaths are skyrocketing but overlooked. Why do only some deaths seem to matter? Let's get talking. I can't stress this enough. The situation is extremely, extremely serious. Right now, we're staring down the barrel of another lockdown in these regions. Last week, I asked the Chief Medical Officer of Health to come back with his recommendations on what we need to do to flatten the curve on the second wave. We expect new measures to be discussed at Cabinet and announced in the coming days. Premier's pissed off, oh yes. Fed up with all the partiers, the rule breakers, and who we should really be pissed off with is the Trudeau government for failing to do the basics of stopping COVID from coming in over the border. Alex Pearson with you on this very eventful Wednesday, November 18th. Hope you're all well. Looks like we're heading into a uh, big little news day on Friday, and not good news. No, I think the Premier made it pretty clear today that uh, York, Peel, Toronto, all headed for some kind of lockdown. I don't know what it's going to look like. I am beyond frustrated that we find ourselves in this place. But uh, it comes, of course, at the most crucial time for retail sales. I mean, if, if that's when they make their margins, right? And for businesses, you know, they're just hanging by a thread with the instability. And so it was pretty clear today by the press conference that Premier Ford was not happy because it could have been avoided. And I mean, there's plenty of blame to go around. And I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But, you know, we learned today that teacher died of COVID. And a, a really big reason that these things are happening is because folks are just refusing to do the basics. Like they're going into work sick. They're they're going out. They're party. They're doing whatever they want. And they're just refusing to do the basics of what is required to stop this thing. And my prayers and thoughts go out to the teacher that uh, lost her life over, over COVID. Guys, get it together because we're at a critical stage. And I, I'm just, I'm at my brink to say enough. So be prepared on Friday. Then you can look at each other and say, why are we in this position? It, it's, it's frustrating. We have to start listening. No more parties, no more nothing. Or, or this is going to be at 6,000 cases a day as we, we saw the trend. I, I just can't stress this anymore. Yeah, it was not too happy. I mean, it, uh, hard to blame the guy. I mean, he's trying his best, but like, if you don't do your part, it, it, this is what's going to happen. 
we did get some good news. I mean, and I say this as a mother who is absolutely set for a straitjacket, should anyone have one in an extra small. Because my child's now been home for two days with a sniffle. That normally I would send him off to school any other time. Uh, but I was so, so pleased to see that schools are going to stay open. Praise be, because we need that. Not just for our sanity, but uh, it, it's what the kids need. I mean, honestly, I'm trying to teach this kid and he's not learning a thing. But we also had some good news in the morning. You know, we're inching, inching closer to the freedom with Pfizer. You know, they've done their testing now. They just need a, approval from health officials on both sides of the border. So, dear Health Canada, I really hope you get off your rear end and actually expedite this thing. You know, you know, we're supposed to have millions of uh, vaccines starting to roll in the new year. So hopefully 2021 will be the year of freedom to some degree. But no sooner did I see that headline than I read a story that should make your head explode. So the CBC reports that between late March to November, 6.5 million people crossed the U.S.-Canada border. And of those people, 5 million plus didn't quarantine, weren't tracked, weren't traced, weren't tested, weren't followed up with. Not until the end of July did border services start to ask a few questions, and that was done sporadically and only used for statistical information. So we'll have great stats one day, but we don't know who the hell went into what community and spread COVID. That's crazy. And the ever-useless Bill Blair and the clearly non-existent Mark Garneau, I mean, they have not made sure that those coming in and out of the country are doing so safely. Here we've been hearing about a couple of executives here and there getting special treatment. Oh, no, no, no. Millions are just coming back and forth, right? Eight months of total inaction by a government finger-waving and judging the provinces, you know, saying lock it down. But they've done nothing to make sure those coming back and forth are doing it safely or making sure, I don't know, that health units that are absolutely buckling right now have the information to, oh, I don't know, protect the public, let the businesses stay open and maybe, I don't know, stop community spread. I mean, it's, it defies all logic, which clearly is not a theme of this pandemic. And, and I want to be real clear here. These are essential workers, the majority of them. And, and they are the people risking their lives. These are the truck drivers, people going back and forth, the guys and gals hauling goods back and forth so we get, you know, can survive. So I don't blame them. I actually really admire the work we do because we can't survive without them. But that you know, they go in and out of hot zones all over the United States and then come back into this country and not even the basics, not even a, a rapid test is run, not even tracing done is just outrageous. And it should infuriate you. I mean, it, it should infuriate the mom I spoke to last night whose child can't get a surgery at sick kids because there's a huge backlog. It should outrage the millions of Canadians ordered into lockdown who've lost jobs, and certainly it should outrage the businesses now shutting down daily, you know, because those in charge, the great Bill Blair, Mark Garneau, and Justin Trudeau, you know, sitting on their rear ends worrying about cover-ups and scandals and resetting the country. What on earth? I don't know how this happened for months. And you can blame Toronto Health for losing control of tracing. You can criticize the Ford government for weeble-wobble responses. Fair enough. But I think this report makes it pretty clear that, you know, in many ways, the GTA certainly 
it was destined to fail thanks in large part to the inaction of the Trudeau government because they did nothing when it comes to borders. They did nothing back in January when their own scientists were saying, hey, hi, over here, red flags waving, killer disease coming in, you might want to stop it. Huh? You talking to us? What? Oh, yeah, we believe in scientists, just not you. Never mind, you're racist. They didn't bother to shut the borders back then to the disease flooding in. But now when we've got the borders closed and I can't go see my sister for 10 months, you can't go visit, you can't travel. But they're not even checking the people coming across the border, making sure that, I don't know, that we know where Doug, the driver, went, who he was with, maybe protect his family at home, maybe protect the grocery store he had to go to, whatever. There's none of that. I mean, no no wonder Peel has become such a Petri dish of spread. And, and, and I get it. Essential workers, they've got to be able to move fast. You can't have them quarantined. 14 days on both sides of the border, our supply chains would fail. But that does not mean you don't put in precautions. It doesn't mean you don't track or trace. It doesn't mean you don't protect these workers from bringing COVID to their families or protect the public at large. I, I don't understand how not even a basic paper trail was made. Where are you going? What's your name? Who are you going to see? It's crazy. And, and and the number they give is 80%. And that's just a guess because apparently the numbers are supposed to be much higher. So yeah, for, for months, millions have been coming in and out and moving around, going to maybe Burlington or Oakville or Toronto. And now we have widespread community spread that no one really has a true understanding of how big it is. And uh, it's... Here we are looking at possibly more lockdowns. And it's pretty clear Ford was very, very unhappy, pissed. And so on Friday, we're going to look at more shutdowns. But I would say to the Trudeau government, you know, the next time you wag your pretty little finger at the provinces for losing control, you might want to point back at yourselves because you're a big reason this is happening. Do your jobs. That's all we're asking. Do your jobs. On Monday, may recall, we discussed the complexity of the Manassian case and the defense using the defense that his autism was a contributing factor to his state of mind, that uh, intellectually he would have understood what he did, but couldn't emotionally rationalize the difference between right and wrong. And this is the defense. And of course, it's rightfully being met with a lot of backlash from those in the autism community who worry it's going to perpetuate unfounded stigmas, uh, fear. And so I was not at all surprised to see Autism Canada push back saying, you know, pointing out that it's reckless and dangerous and could further alienate and ostracize a community that is often still misunderstood and generally are the ones on the end of violence. Let us bring in a couple of uh, people to give their perspective on this. We've got the executive director, Margaret Spolstra of Autism Ontario. And Jenny is joining us as well because she has a teenage daughter on the autism spectra. Ladies, thank you for joining me. Good to be here. Thank you. Let me start with you, Margaret. Um, 
let's talk. I mean, for decades, uh, organizations like yourself have spent time trying to educate people, bring people into the world of autism so that people understand the differences of where people are on the spectrum, you know, what they should look for, what to expect, how to treat them, uh, what they might be going through. I mean, decades of this kind of education. Is your concern that that becomes, um, you know, that that gets undone? Well, we certainly are worried about it, given what's all been happening in in the press now with this case. Um, And, you know, there is every effort we make over many, many years, and this has largely been led by parents and now autistic self-advocates as well, but really trying to find acceptance and opportunities um, and having people be able to understand that they're people first and that the range of expression of autism characteristics is very wide and that when you're talking about one person on the autism spectrum um, you've met one person on the autism spectrum it's a phrase we often use in in this field but when this type of news reporting is taking place and this case is speaking about autism um, as the reason for this violence um, it's it is demeaning to all people on the autism spectrum and their families who are trying to find that place in society um, as, as a full citizen. I mean, the defense is very limited with what kind of defense it can mount. Um, but, but to put the category of autism into almost the category of a mental illness, uh, you know, and that's, you know, we're, we're talking about this man's state of mind. Um, it doesn't, I wouldn't even say it blurs the lines, but it, it, suggests that, um, you know, someone who's on the spectrum can all of a sudden turn turn violent or, or have these kinds of evil thoughts. Right. So we know the diagnosis of autism. If we look at it, it, it speaks about some of the social challenges that are present and some repetitive kinds of behaviors, but it never speaks about violence, not as a diagnosis, not as the characteristics that are associated with autism. And in fact, we know that people on the autism spectrum are are more likely to be victims of crimes than they are to be perpetrators of crimes. Right. Yeah. And we've seen it in many, many instances. Jenny, let me bring you into this conversation because you have a daughter uh, with autism. And the one thing and why I wasn't surprised that we would would see this kind of reaction is because as soon as uh, I read about the defense, you know, last week at the end of the week, I started getting emails from listeners saying, hold on a second, my child is more apt to hug you than hurt you. And so as you're watching this and and witnessing this, um, what goes through your mind on behalf of, you know, your daughter? Well, honestly, my heart just sank when I heard it. I mean, I, I, they were throwing around the term last week, and then when it was confirmed earlier this week, I just I was kind of shocked and then leapt straight to outrage that such a careless and irresponsible blanket statement could be made. Um, you know, because implicit in that pleading is, is the notion that because you are autistic, you don't have a moral code, you can't tell right from wrong, you cannot be held responsible for your actions, which is just absurd and outrageous. And as a parent of a kid um, mm-hmm. who, who's struggling, she's not a teenager yet, by the way, she's, she's only seven. But as a, as a parent, you hope for the best for your child and to see struggles maybe already happening in her life and then to be met with the possibility that those in the public who are less educated or less aware of the realities of autism might now make assumptions about her based on this, I think is just 
completely abhorrent. It is reprehensible in every way for, for autism to be used as such a blanket statement. I mean, the good, the good news is, I mean, it's rare if ever that I recall um, having a case like this. Um, but again, it, it only takes one, and this happens to be a very high-profile case, so it's going to get an awful lot of attention. And for those who don't understand autism, it's described as a neuro, uh, neurodevelopmental disorder characterized by social impairments and difficulty inferring the thoughts, feelings, and emotions of others, but it is not. And I, I understand, Margaret, it is not and never has been characterized by violence or a, a lack of a moral compass. That's right. Um, and so I think this just draws attention to it in that way. And then um, just as Jenny said, the idea of lumping together people in this way um, or that people would have to, um, if they're talking about their autism to other people, then suddenly people saying, oh, there's an association with, with violence in autism is something that is, is simply not the case. But um, now that's an additional stigma that um, autistic people have to defend against. Um, and they already struggle so much um, with finding meaningful places in, in communities. And when they have so much to contribute, um, adding, having to deal with an additional fear in society is, is simply wrong. Right. And Jenny, I mean, every child has a temper tantrum and those on the spectrum have temper tantrums. They can get equally frustrated too. Is that your experience with your daughter? I mean, that doesn't make them violent. It makes them uh, pretty much, I have temper tantrums yeah. all the time. That's right. It makes, I mean, I have two children, one on the spectrum and one not, and they both have temper tantrums. We all get angry. We all have trouble expressing our emotions. These are normal human behaviors. And it's just uh, a, a spectrum diagnosis may sort of give a clue as to why a person can't express maybe the same way a neurotypical person would. But it certainly has never, never led to a, sort of any kind of associations with violence or or antisocial behavior or things like that it's it's just it's absurd to, to even lead lead that way you know and so and so margaret what does this mean moving forward i mean justice malloy uh, i've covered many of her cases she's a brilliant judge and i have absolutely no doubt that she will um very much see through the haze of any of this case so she's very very smart and and, and very thoughtful um and, and I, I don't know if it's going to be a successful, um, you know, defense. The good news is that we're able to talk about it because it's a judge alone trial. I mean, if this were a jury trial, we would not be able to say anything about this to at least get information out. But, you know, you are now trying to get information out. Does this mean you have to then go through more educating uh, moving forward? Uh, does it take you back or does it just continue onward and upward? I think, you know, for organizations like ours that have been around for um, 47 years already, run by parents who have been doing this for a very long time, trying to educate people so that they can understand and recognize that people um, who are autistic are part of what it means to be human. And the education piece is something that we're even more committed to now that um, this story is, is out there. Um, and it'll, if, if, the, the flip side of a bad side of the coin is that it means that people will ask questions so right. that they can get to meet people on the spectrum and find out what amazing things they have to offer, um, that that is the real story and that they are contributing citizens in, in every way. And I thank you both um, for sharing your time on this. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's crucial that, that you get a side and a voice in this. And, and 
do you have anything to say on behalf of your daughter, um, you know, that, that you would want people to understand about Jenny? No, she's a she's a totally normal little girl who loves to play and have fun and make friends. And she just all she wants is in life is to just be part of the gang. And so, you know, that's that's really what it comes down to. She's a human like everybody else. Well, who doesn't want that? Uh, Ladies, I thank you very much for your time. And I'm sure we'll have a conversation again. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. That is Jenny, who has a daughter on the spectrum, and uh, so takes this, of course, very personally and can speak very personally about it. And of course, that is Autism Ontario, Margaret Spolstra, joining us tonight. So uh, there you go. You got the other side. But again, I say Justice Malloy is a very, very good judge and uh, a very thoughtful judge. And I think at the end of the day, she will know what the decision uh, is that needs to be made. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, great to have you here on this Wednesday. It is uh, just after nine, and you know we're warned to stay locked up in our homes. You know, as the so-called experts decide the next steps, likely a lockdown coming Friday, and these are like full-on draconian kill business moves. Of course, it won't kill the virus, and so we just see the collateral damage just keeps piling up, be it the kids who can't get life-saving surgeries, you know, cancer patients dying of undetected cancers, or of course the ever-increasing opiate death, which are actually far worse than, than a virus itself. You know, if you look at the death rate in Ontario alone, they're saying up to 80 people a week are dying. That's an estimate. And as John Robson points out in the National Post, we seem to focus solely on the COVID deaths. And we're operating under this notion that everyone who's died in past months has only died of covid and we gloss over the actual death, like drug doses, all a big part of a, a result of these lockdowns because they're kind of just Sun Robson joining us now. He wrote about this in the National Post and, of course, is the executive director of the Climate Change Nexus. Good to have you, John. Good to be here. You dig into the numbers and it's been written about by, by very few, you know, thousands and thousands of COVID deaths, you know, are reported, but they're conflated. You know, because most of these people dying are dying of underlying conditions and not just because of of COVID, but we take it kind of as the gospel. Yeah, my my column was triggered by a piece in the National Post about the the number of opioid overdose deaths, which seems to have gone up considerably uh, to a level of almost 200 a month in the summer in B.C. alone. And then, as you say, in Ontario, it's an estimated 50 to 80 people a week. And I thought, well, there's something a bit funny about that, because if you want to know how many COVID deaths have been, you get an exact number. The number I got was 10,998 nationally, not 99, not 97, not plus or minus, just 10,998. But when someone dies with COVID, it's kind of a judgment call. How much do you contribute to their death? If they're 83 and suffering from cancer and diabetes, it's Mm -hmm. difficult to say, ah, another COVID death. I'm sure you'd think, but no, check COVID. But with an opiate overdose, it's like, here's a person who was alive yesterday and was in, not in medical distress. Now they're dead, and they've got opioids in their bloodstream. You'd think, why was it between 50 and 80? Like, Why is it that you can't count that one, but you can count the COVID death? 
And then the other point is, and why have the opioid overdose deaths surged the way they have? They think they've doubled in BC. They're up by maybe 40% in Ontario. This is part of the real human cost of social isolation, of the deterioration in the economy. I mean, you know, government workers aren't losing their jobs, but uh, people in the private sector are. They can't find work. They think there's no work. They can't see their families. They just feel hopelessness, and hopelessness kills people. And instead, you've got fatuous myths like Doug Ford going, oh, yeah, well, there'll always be another Christmas. But it's no big deal if we can't see your Christmas, right? Well, what if your grandmother's 83? Like, how many more Christmases do you think she's got? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's all, well, the heck with Christmas. Like, the only bad thing that can happen to you is COVID. I think I made this point in an earlier discussion that it's like, you know, the old days going to hell, right? Going to hell was so bad, no matter what you did to avoid it. Well, now that dying of COVID is so bad that if you do take any co- other course of action, you say, well, aren't there, aren't there risks that, oh, would you shut up? What are you, a denier? Put on a mask. You don't get a rational discussion of, yeah, okay, well, this is going to cause trouble. Like, I mean, suicide, I didn't even mention those in the in the piece and of course the media has a tendency not to cover suicides but has there been an increase in the suicide rate as people yeah. see their hoops and dreams disappearing and it yeah. seems to be that there has been well, there has. I mean, they, we do now start to report suicides in the media. It was often don't do it because they didn't want the copycats. But we do know that suicide rates are up. We haven't been given specifics because I don't think they have the actual data yet, probably because they're just worried only about COVID. But, you know, you mentioned Ford's comments about, you know, there'll be always a next Christmas. I mean, Christmas is one of the toughest times for people. I mean, it is when we do see more suicides. It is a very isolated time for a lot of people who don't have families. It's a crappy time in my family because my dad died on Christmas. And so for a lot of people, it's very difficult. You add in then a loss of a business, loss of a job. And it's not just about we'll get another Christmas. For a lot of people, certainly this year, it's going to mean, you know what? I can't do anymore. And it'll be end of life. Yeah, but all of this is treated as though it was nothing, a mere bag of tallow, like some sort of a joke, like that thing with the, the Mona Lisa's and the stages of the lockdown. And there's been some good bleak humor to help us try and get through all this, but but the costs of the lockdown are very real. And they're not just monetary costs. They're psychological costs. They're health costs. You know, probably seeing more um, what you might call slow-motion suicides, you know, from excessive alcohol consumption. You see mm-hmm. people having, not exercising, the mounting stress. And, mm-hmm. and then again, like New York City, they're just closing all the schools. Again. It's like, oh, yeah, well, look after your kid. You know, so this was, was nothing had any negative impact except getting COVID. And this is the fatuity of it. I say, never mind the settled science. It's clear that the people who run our society know nothing about economics. They don't understand the concept of a trade-off. And then you look at people dying of opioid overdoses. You know, is, this, is this not enough to get your attention? That people whose lives perhaps are already um, going off the rails somewhat, and now they're dead, right? Because now they can't pull it together because they died. And they died horribly. They died young in many cases. Um, they died under dismal circumstances that you think, what a tragic waste of life. And what do you get from the politicians? Hey, put on a mask. You know, well, you know this person has worse problems than that. I mean, we don't, and then, you know, you couldn't go to Remembrance Day because you couldn't you can gather outside or something like that. Can't go to a funeral. Well, you can't go to Remembrance Day, you know, well, that you can always start another restaurant. You know, whatever happens, your parent dies, you can't have a, a funeral service, well, you can always get another parent. But it's incredible. It's so callous. They're almost going around, oh, I'm so concerned, I'm so empathetic. But then you look at what they're doing. And it's so callous, you know, Christmas, Christmas. And and as you say, for some people, Christmas is difficult. And maybe you say, okay, well, don't worry. Everyone's having a difficult Christmas. Cheer up or some such insensitive message. But really, you, and you take some the, the, I calculate that there must be, you know, minimum 3,600 excess 
opiate mm-hmm. overdose deaths a year in Canada. That's just that one cause. What about adding the suicides? Add in the slow motion suicides. Add in the heart attacks. Not just people who can't get treatment because the hospital's braced for a, a wave that never really came, but just because stress is killing them. Because we know stress is bad for people. We know despair kills people. If you look at the excess mortality in all these categories and then take off the deaths you think you prevented, which I don't even know how many you're going to claim that is, and we're back into lockdown, so don't start counting too fast, you may well find that the lockdowns have killed more lives, have taken more lives than they've saved. But we're not even discussing that. Well, no, you're right. I mean, it's the phrase, the cure is costlier than the disease. And and I'm sure 10 years, like a decade from now, when the studies are done and all the inquiries and whatever we end up looking back at, we'll say, oh, gee, well, look, you know, all those measures we took, they really were ultimately more expensive than the disease. And you're right. It will be the child uh, who couldn't get their cleft lip fixed because uh, surgeries were shut down or, or the, you know, sick kids hospital emergencies or all these people that will be looked at as collateral damage. And I think in the end, uh, while we're kind of stuck in COVID now, there are going to be an awful lot of people, and they should probably be asking themselves, like, what were we thinking? Were we thinking? Because again, and this is not just in COVID, this is part of a very bad habit that politicians have on virtually everything. But if you ask them what to do about a problem, they give you a solution they say is is all gain, no pain. I've got a marvelous solution, fixes everything, right? Like Joe Biden, well, he's going to fix you know, climate change and the <laughs> racial inequalities in, uh, in environmental impacts, right? It's like, oh, he's going to have world peace and, you know, save money. Like everything is just, they never come to you and say, well, we're going to do this. And then here's the good things that will happen. But yeah, this is going to be on the downside. And we've, we've looked at it and we figure we're getting more than we're losing. But we do realize there's a cost here. And if they would just talk like that sometimes, but they never do. And so when you come to COVID, you can't get them to admit, oh, yeah, if we clear the decks in the emergency room for COVID, we're going to be turning away some people who should get other things. I mean, they talked about this, like the, the surgical wait list. Oh, yeah, they probably doubled. Oh, well, you know, we'll put a little extra money into it short and later. As if you, if you knew how to do that, why didn't you do it 10 years ago? And these have catastrophic effects. Even like the hip replacement. Say, oh, well, you can always get another hip, right? Hip Schmidt, you've got two of them. But the thing is, if you're elderly and you're suffering increase decreased mobility and pain and you can't sleep and things like that. You can't play with your grandkids. You can't say, well, in five years, you can go and do it again. You know, cause, well, or, 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 or you slip on the ice and fall and then you've got pneumonia and you're in a hospital where you catch COVID. I mean, you're right. There are all of these reactions to the reaction and uh, the solution is in search of many, many more problems. Um, We'll talk about this again because, again, we're going to get more numbers as they come out. And so we'll, we'll talk further about it. John, I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. John Robson joining us. And of course, you can read this uh, article in uh, the National Post. And he's right. Uh, it's not that COVID's not important, but the cost we are paying in so many other areas is not something that should be just shrugged off as collateral damage. All right. The Boeing 730 has been given the green light to fly in the United States, uh, but not Canada. I'm not sure I'm ready to board, even if it is. Are you? We will talk about that coming up next here on Point Stay With Us on Global News Radio. All righty, Alex Pearson here, and the news coming out on the headlines, the Boeing 737 MAX. This is a plane riddled with issues, a plane that crashed twice, killing hundreds of passengers, including many Canadians, in uh, just one year. A plane that pilots weren't trained to fly because the company cut corners and didn't bother to tell anyone of the challenges that might arise when the software doesn't work. Well, it has been given approval, again, to fly in the United States. 
but not here in Canada. And officials here say, you know, given all the issues, they want to make sure to review the safety changes made. But, you know, given all the issues, not just with the aircraft, but with the U.S. federal authority, which had been found to turn a blind eye to the problems and granted license to fly, how much can we trust this aircraft and those in charge of approvals? I mean, are you hopping on one of these things? I am not, but that's because I'm a chicken. Captain Mark Weiss, who we've had on the show many times, is a very experienced retired captain and also now investigates these kinds of issues. He joins us now. Good to have you, Captain. Nice to be back. Thank you for having me. Okay, so the U.S. is allowing flight of this particular vehicle, but not Canada. Does that say anything to you? Well, I I think it says more to the stand about uh, the FAA than anything else. Remember, Canada was uh, part of the group for the joint operations evaluations that they had a little while ago uh, in Vancouver to assess the uh, airworthiness of the aircraft. So I think what you're seeing is uh, a little bit of flexing one's own muscles for Transport Canada, as well as, as other international uh, regulatory agencies. I mean, this is an aircraft that has been on the ground now for two years. It is one of the more popular airplanes. Um, you know, I guess it's less expensive and, and, you know, countries can buy more of these. But the FAA has lost a lot of credibility um, given some of the findings out of these two particular crashes with this particular airline or air flight. And so they don't, they can't lose any more credibility. Have they, in your mind put in the changes necessary to make this a, a trustworthy um, plane? Well, you know, let's go back just a little bit. It's not just the FAA. It's the FAA. It's the certification process. Uh, it's Boeing as well. Uh, I think everybody has a degree of culpability with this. Uh, certainly the FAA has had a stain on its reputation all of, you know, the recent Transport Canada, uh, EASA, the uh, CAAC in China have not authorized the aircraft to fly in their airspace at this time. I think what those countries are doing is now and in the future saying, uh, FAA, uh, you know, you're not as trustworthy as you've been. We can stand up on our own. We're big boys, too. And I think this is a real uh, eye opener for both the United States and certainly for the FAA on how they have to work with international partners. Right. And so you're, you're, I think it's going to be, I'm sorry. I think it's going to be a while before the FAA gets its credibility and Boeing for that matter, back with uh, other agencies or globally. Okay. And then what about with those flying these uh, machines? I mean, you're a captain, you flew, flew for decades, you know this particular plane. Um, would you feel safe, uh, you know, going up in the air in this? And, and further to that question, Mark, you know, there are a lot of more impoverished countries that maybe are okay cutting some corners, maybe didn't want to pay for some of the upgrades. Are they at a level that they can fly even with these new and improved upgrades to the plane? Well, Here's, here's an issue with that. Uh, as far as would I get on an airplane with this, the airline that I work for is putting them back into service at the end of next month. I know the training department uh, at the, my old company, 
And I know the rigorous procedures that they go through. I also recognize the fact that they were one of the first ones to say, wait a minute, we're not getting on that airplane uh, just by learning from a, uh, uh, an iPad. We need to be able to go into a simulator and be trained. And on top of that, we need to make sure that any type of changes that changes the flight envelope that we are aware of and we're trained on. So when, when pilots from my old company are willing to get back into that cockpit, I'm willing to get back into that airplane, and I'd be willing to put my family on it. With regard to other countries, um, you know, one of the things that they've done is this called a blacklist. If an airline hasn't trained its pilots properly or its equipment is below standards, it's not allowed to fly in European airspace or Canadian airspace or U.S. airspace. So I think what you're going to see is Boeing going out of their way to make training accessible, affordable, and really to, to make sure that all pilots are trained in this. Boeing itself cannot have a black eye again. So I think you're going to be seeing pilots from around the globe having the same level of training. Uh, when, when this airplane was brought out, uh, it wasn't really brought out with the idea that uh, you were going to, the people who were flying it weren't going to be trained to standards that you necessarily see in the West. Because of the accidents, I think uh, regulatory agencies and certification processes and manufacturers now have to train to the lowest common denominator, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Well, I I'm terrified of flying, as you well know, so I... <laughs> I would not want to get on this, even if it were like the best, the Rolls Royce of it. <laughs> uh, but how much training then? So how how much how many pilots then will be taken out of of service, and and how long will they have to train for before getting into this particular um, plane? Well, uh, what you have when you have an airplane, uh, this is a seven thirty seven, a basic airframe of a seven thirty seven. When you get qualified on an airplane, you get qualified on a type airplane, not necessarily a particular model. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is you have a 737, uh, 700, 800, max, uh, three. So you don't get trained on the specific one. You get trained on a 737. But when you go from one model to the other, there's what they call differences training. And I think what you're going to see is those pilots who are 737 qualified will now be different trained on the new equipment and the, uh, the new uh, standardization of what's on board those aircraft. Boy, oh boy. Well, we'll see how this one plays out. And uh, I always turn to you on these aviation stories and... Um... You know, at least one. this one's not a bad news, but it is certainly big news for those uh, if we ever get traveling again. Mark, I wish you a, a good night, and I thank you very much for sharing your time. Thank you very much. Have a safe, healthy, happy holiday season, and stay safe with the virus. That is Captain Mark Weiss joining us here, and uh, hopefully we don't have to reach out to him again. And because we're not traveling, we can kind of just watch the changes and ease on into this thing all right when we come back we'll talk about this uh covid vaccine the rollout the potential for it the realistic time of it and some of the dire warnings now ahead of a 
what looks like a lockdown coming on Friday. And the fact is, we should not even be in this place. So we'll talk about that coming up in just a minute. Stay with us on Point. I'm Alex Pearson, and this is Global News Radio. You, of course, can join us Monday to Friday, live 6.30 to 10. Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.